Welcome to Niggas Eatin', a tastefully offensive podcast with your hosts, Tammy. And Rory. I, 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 okay. I think I like it the other way around when we say each other's names, but that's just me. Okay. This is like the, um, the filler episodes in an anime, you know, mm-hmm. this little arc of like, what, who's going to say whose name, you know, and me fighting for it. It's not, it doesn't really matter. But we'll see the outcome eventually. I'm the protagonist, so I'm going to win. You're breathing into the mic. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, So today's episode is about cinnamon topography. Cinematography. Cinematography. The art of making motion pictures is what the first definition apparently on Google was, uh, which is true because cinematography is very central to not only the existence of film, you don't have it, you don't have film without cinematography. Um, the look of the film, cinematography goes into staging, it determines, not necessarily determines, but it has a large factor into costuming, the lighting changes depending upon what kind of costumes you have, if it's sparkly, kind of, you know, bedazzled stuff or very dark costumes. It goes into VFX because the VFX have to match the kind of lenses and the, the focus and uh, things like that. It goes into acting, editing, it goes into scheduling, the pacing of the film. At every aspect of film is affected by cinematography. So it's a very important topic and we're going to get into it. Uh, so on avant. Let's do it. Um, so on my end, um, the research I did was just trying to figure out what cinematographers do or how they classify what their work is. Um, So I started reading uh, one of my college cinematography books that I never cracked open. And that wasn't necessarily the route I was actually looking for because that's explaining, you know, how to set a shot, what a proper composition looks like. What F-stop is. Mm -hmm. Um, The the technical building blocks, Mm -hmm. which is nice, but... Not exactly what we're going for. Um, In this episode, we're going to talk more about the artistic, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. (laughs) Well, it's important for the people to know. You just had like this cutting out. I'm telling you, Temi. I'm not telling you. I'm telling you. That's what we're going to talk about. I was was emphasizing your point. So please don't talk about technical shit, motherfucker. And I'm like, all right. No, no, no. No, we decided not to talk about the technical stuff because that's what a lot of people talk about online mm-hmm. on the youtube series and uh in these books and nobody really talks about the artistic aspects of it mm. which is like where i think both of us are coming from yeah because a lot of directors who are very intimidated like you uh, people on twitter people who are like in these you know it's their first movie premiering at whatever festival they're in the q a and they're just like i'm very intimidated by cinematography it's a very technical art but if you have the artistic background and you can explain and articulate your ideas that way, then it's up to the cinematography. You really don't need to know what an f-stop is. I mean, or what a technocrane is. That obviously affects scheduling and budgeting, so you should have an idea, but you don't need to know how to operate it. You know. Agreed. Just uh, you know, the way you say things sometimes. You know what I mean. Only child Scorpio. Yeah, but you know what I mean. It's still affecting. Um, but it's effective. To who? Well, go on. Right. So, um, right. So, my research uh, pivoted, and I was looking up um, two films. Um, the first one is Visions of Light. It was produced in 1991, and uh, was essentially uh, a wonderful send up to the. White pioneers of film. The interestingly fun fact, the theme song for that is a Mariah Carey song. It's a remix. Instead of Visions of Love, it's Visions of Light. With boys to men. (laughs) You good? Yes. Okay. Are you happy with that one? (laughs) No, but... I'm happy for you, honestly. Because, like, (laughs) I I was just like, where is he going with Mariah? Okay. Mm, All right. All right. 
Um, and this, uh, that was uh, made in 1991. Um, and uh, basically the only other documentary I could find that kind of holistically talked about cinematography uh, with cinematographers present in it was Cinematography Style, which was made in 2006. And that one kind of just gets into the meat and bones of um, how cinematographers... Uh, develop essentially. So they talked to maybe 130 cinematographers, all at different levels, uh, different levels and different um, operating in the different tiers of film. So, you know, whether it's commercial or, uh, you know, big budget, independent, et cetera. Um, so I didn't necessarily get much out of the first doc, mostly because it, you know, after my uh, training at the institution, um, it was very hard to ignore the kind of romantic vision of like early Hollywood cinema, um, specifically around, you know, D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation and how, you know, we've kind of mythologized um, that film and its content as the, the predecessor to modern filmmaking with, you know, uh, jump cuts and close ups and all this stuff without ever, you know, talking about the racial implications but that's not the point the yeah we're gen- gonna get to that g- generally later. just romanticize generally just romanticizing about hollywood was you know on one part okay cool here's some movies i might want to check out you know they talk about greg toland and um and uh citizen kane uh, james wong how and- right um so they talk about you know it's in the pocket of hollywood cinema and that's fine you know that's something that you should definitely know if if uh if you're going down that path um uh, the one thing that did catch my eye was the opening shots they took from a 1940s version of Oliver Twist. And Ernest Dickerson, the only black cinematographer who was in that project, um, who was in the documentary, was talking about that being one of the first films that he saw that he understood how affecting, you know, you could be creating moving images. Um and yeah, it focused on Hollywood style and, you know, it's a general appreciation of the craft. Did you see um, the Keanu Reeves doc side by side? You know what? I did see that a while ago. That yeah. was about filmmaking in general, it was, right? No, it was about um, digital and analog uh, and how okay. that's like the workflows for those and how those different styles are emerging. And is it the death of cinema or celluloid and all of this other stuff. It came out in like 2012, maybe. I forgot about that, but I did watch that. Yeah. And James Cameron had the best take of (laughs) all the directors. Which was, Um, I made Terminator. No, no, no. People think that celluloid looks real. Well, I'm sorry to tell you, but no matter what you film, it's all fake, so it doesn't fucking matter anyway. And it's like, yeah. (laughs) Says the man who pushed Hollywood to create um, real-time graphic engine cameras. Yeah. So, no, no, I mean that in a positive because it's like, whatever, (laughs) like I'm making eight avatars. Um, (laughs) But the second, but the second, um, the second doc I watched cinematography style uh, really caught my attention mostly because um, it just focused on how cinematographers got into the business, how they developed their style. um, And, you know, kind of like different aspects of, cinematography like the use of light and managing their crew but because there were so many cinematographers you really just got like a couple bites from each person you mm-hmm. know you did i saw a handful of black cinematographers besides um Ernest um and uh, and a, and a few women actually like three or four women um which was great but they're mostly you know white men and what was what was funny to me was when they're talking about uh, when they're talking about people's introduction into cinematography or how they got into the business, a quarter of the white men almost all immediately said it had something to do with being in the family business or, you know, somebody in their immediate family was an actor or it just in some part of the business, if they were a cinematographer or not. So, so like nepotism yeah. plays heavily into the film industry. And it was kind of nice to see that. Not nice, but it was surprising that it was just so forthcoming yeah most a lot of directors and right like above the line talent they're very shy about being you know oh i'm a coppola because you know there's million of them but um 
cinematographers tend to be more open with that in my experience, like talking to them and like seeing them online and stuff like that. Like James Laxton's uh, parents are producers and everything. Mm, I didn't know that. about that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, hopefully we're moving less towards a taboo subject about that for all of filmmaking. Right. Um, but we'll see. But, um, yeah. So, you know, lineage and nepotism and, and, you know, a lot of people talked about their uh, development and style mm-hmm. and ha- and a lot of them emphasize the importance of collaborating, communicating with the production designer, which I thought was interesting, mostly because uh, I think in school that was uh, overlooked, you know, more or less where unless you were going out of your way to make a specific look for your film you were just happy that you were shooting on something or at least that was my experience and there wasn't necessarily any kind of formal or informal like emphasis on production design yeah they didn't talk about production design at all at the institution right but i mean hearing all these you know very successful well-known you know Mm -hmm. cinematographers talk about how early on in the pre-production stage they're talking to them you know even before they do lighting tests you know mm-hmm. just so that they have an understanding of what is the wardrobe going to look like you know what are the locations mm-hmm. and sets how are they going to be dressed you know how do we build out a color scheme across the film that goes along with the narrative and the story or the characters um and that was a uh, i think a nice point to to think about um so style is important because you know some uh, cinematographers develop their style based on new technology, um, and that was definitely an important conversation going on around 2006 when you know digital cameras were starting to pop up. You know, it was before the Red One, but after Oh Brother Where Art Thou with DI, um, with the digital intermediate, and with uh, George Lucas and Star Wars with his, you know, um, Attack of the Clones and right. Uh, but you know, some of them say their style is built from the technology. You know, others were saying it just depends on the the schedule and the budget of the mm-hmm. film. You know, it's very true. If you're just shooting fast and you have, you know, twenty days, that's it. You know, yeah. but if you're James Cameron and you have eight years, then you know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> eight years and a, and a billion dollars, I guess it doesn't matter. But um Gordon Willis, who uh photographed the Godfather, he said that he decided on the style the day before they started uh shooting principal photography. So that's like that, you know, kind of golden, amberish, slightly sepia tone kind of look. The Marlon that, Brando of cinematographers. Yes, the Marlon Brando of cinematographers. Apocalypse Now, and he's like, oh, I'm going to do this. No, 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 I'm going to do like very last minute decisions. Right. And, yeah. and it's Coppola. And- right. Um, and I guess some of that is, you know, that was the 70s. So, you know, after <laughs> studios being gutted and all that stuff. That was the 70s. There was there's a there's a little there's a a little bit more leeway because, you know, you have practitioners who are very good at what they do and can deliver. So people don't bother them. And then. After that, you had a Jaws and a new hope. Yeah, you you had let's do Star Wars over and over again and all all that stuff. Um, And a lot of DPs came from, you know, documentary. um, uh, Roger Deakins. uh, Ellen Karras, who did uh, Eternal, Su- Eternal Sunshine. <laughs> oh no, that was a Swedish woman who did right. Hidden Fences. Um, no, she did. He, she did Hidden Figures, not Fences. And mm-hmm. um, and Reed Morano, but um, yeah, like how documentary can influence. She came from documentary. She was in that. No, Doc? she wasn't in it. Oh, she just oh, oh, she oh, also oh. came from it. Oh, yeah. okay. But just in the sense that you know that influences how you work because you have to work very quickly and you don't get another shot. So yeah, um, you're kind of building the story out as you go, mm-hmm. and you develop some kind of practices that definitely carry over for a narrative work. Yeah, I've, I worked with a, a former news well yeah, DP professor was a newsman and it's yeah, very quick, quick and like quick. fast setups and everything, but still good, obviously. But mm-hmm. like we're used to working with nothing and very quickly. So that's a good skill to have. Right. So I think the big takeaway from the doc was just seeing so many different technicians talk about their work and not really talking about the history or great images and moments in cinematography. It's just mm-hmm. the practitioners themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does that have to do with me? Well, um, I was just thinking, as I was watching these, I was thinking about how, I was reflecting on how I used to think about cinematography. And to me, I've kind of collected like three stages I've been at. 
Um, the first one was in 2004 to 2013. This is this first phase where um, high school through undergrad, where the idea is cinematography, good, great, amazing cinematography is cool, handheld shit. So it was Lance Accord, Alan Carras, uh, Chivo, and Maddie Libatique. So it's like you had Reckoning for a Dream, Itumama Tambien, Lost in Translation, Adaptation, and Being John Malkovich, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. So it was like cool shots and kind of somber, melancholic stories. And I basically thought if you do it handheld and you know things look or feel real and intense and gritty, mm-hmm. all these buzzwords that like I just kind of overemphasized, that that meant that that's good cinematography. And it wasn't even until 2007 when I first used a Bolex that I realized what I was doing on a DVX, just shooting a whole tape of 60 minutes, was not the way to go about it. <laughs> because <laughs> when you spend $100 on three minutes of film and all your stuff turns out like garbage, and then you look back to any fucking movie, all the Hollywood romanticized ones, you're like, holy shit, how did anybody do that? practice and skill right skill that was the big part and the other thing light using light yeah from 2007 to 2013 there was like a transition where i thought that kind of more established indie hollywood films were you know where it's at where was the magic at so it's like long takes anamorphic you know shallow yeah shallow focus so uh you know well in shallow focus in this decade this era is very important because all of like the lenses that DSLRs were used, and stuff. And then, well, before the DSLRs, when we were shooting on like the DVX, the DVX and DVX. stuff like that, they you had to get a lens adapter to get like yeah, the photographic lettuce, the lenses. Adapter, so you can, yeah. so if you had a shallow focus and you're an independent like, filmmaker oh, on digital, you got money, honey. Are, That's production make, value. You are making it, it means your movie is good. It could be shit, it could be but shit, it's like but your, your movie is fucking because, good, right? Because to be able to control the focus is so important and those DVX cameras really didn't do that. They, they, their built-in lenses really couldn't handle that. Poor man's trick. Zoom all the way in and back up from your oh, yeah. character. Oh, I remember that. And then with your I shaky fucking hands, oh, yeah. you know, I leaned oh, into yeah. that shit. So. But, then, but then in this era, I thought like, you know, Roger Deakins and Robert Ellsworth and Chivo again and Sean Bobbitt were like the magic. It was the sauce. You know, Hunger, Tree of Life, Punch Drunk Love, There Will Be Blood, Assassination of Jesse James. I'm thinking, oh, look at all these Chris movies. The other part I didn't realize is that, you know, they had a budget to do a DI and really, um, really emphasize and control the color and the mm-hmm. grading afterwards. So there was kind of this like larger than life sense that I didn't understand. Uh, then finally, I'm at this new stage uh, from 2013 to now is where there was kind of a re-education. So I'm going to pause right here um, because it kind of ties into what you talk about. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, I guess I'm going to come at this. I guess I can go through my stages, which, I mean, besides the handheld, are pretty much the same as you. I mean, I was a shooter, like, in undergrad and before high school, well, in high school, and then that transition into undergrad, where I was just like, I need to get an image because that's the assignment, so here we go. And no consideration for lighting. I'm trying to recreate, you know, some of my favorite shots. What's a light? So, um I'm like, why doesn't this look the same? Well, because you're using the light in your mother's living room and not actual light. I'm sorry. Just that question alone. Why doesn't it look like the thing I was trying to do plagued me for years? It's like, I don't get it. Um, How did my, you know, $200 Canon camera not match up to a fucking WB production? Right. Um, But... Uh, and then it really wasn't until the institution where I, um, where everything clicked for me. Like I knew what an aperture was. I knew like, uh, ISO and frame rate and shutter speed and all of that. Like I understood lighting ratios, but it didn't click until our cinematography professor at, uh, uh, Howard was just like, this is it. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, oh, that, that just makes sense. And everything clicked for me. And then I began experimenting a little bit more with all of these things. Um, and then I think that's when I became a cinematographer. I mean, I am a cinematographer, but it's not, it's not like necessarily my primary practice, but it's, it's has always been a very important thing to me because like I said, at the top of the podcast, there's no, 
you don't have cinematography. You don't have movies without cinematography. And everybody was very like any interview of a director that I heard was like cinematography is very daunting, but you need to kind of maybe understand it a little bit that therefore you can like direct it. And so the cinematographer isn't in control of your images and stuff like that. So like I spent a lot of time studying cinematography um, and in addition to like the technical aspects, it's also like the, the kind of cultural and the aesthetic aspects of cinematography. Um, because before I went to film school, I was, you know, online on those little the DVX user forms and stuff like that. And I was asking people about film schools, like what film school should I go to? And then everybody's talking about like, oh, well, you know, if you go to NYU, it's more independent. They hate digital. So you only shoot on film. And then if you go to UCLA, that's more Hollywood. They don't really you can't if you're a selected person, you'll get your thesis film, but if not, you're just going to work on somebody else's and they like digital. So you're not going to use film and whether or not these are all true or not, like it scared me. They're not. I know, but it scared me. And I was like, Oh shit. So like, I need to understand like all these aspects of film. So I started, that's when I started my independent study of, of cinema. Um, and I was asking for syllabi too, from, from some of these kids are like, what books are you reading? What movies are you watching? Like what, what topics are you covering? And it's all the same shit. Everybody talks about birth of a nation. Everybody talks about citizen Kane. Everybody reads, you know, the David Boardwell film history book. Everybody reads, you know, um, painting with light and things like this. So I was like, Oh, this is really weird that like everybody's saying that all oh, these institutions are so different, but they're teaching the same thing. So I sought out alternative like information. So I was reading about like, Oh, Ingmar Bergman. So let me read about Sven Niksvik. And then, oh, you know, it's um, Kazuo Miyagawa who shoots some of the Ozu films and the uh, Kurosawa films and the uh, Mizuguchi films. And so I was reading about his practice and um, the cinematographers who worked with uh, Tarkovsky and things. Those are like the three big ones for me in the beginning. Um, and it's, it's very interesting, like the difference between the approaches between how international, non-Hollywood, non-American cinematographers approach cinematography versus American cinematographers uh, approach cinematography. Um, and that was, I think that was very helpful in, in understanding that like what is being presented to you in these like technical books about this is what a good frame is. It's not. Like one of the things that across the board, if you talk to any cinematographer, like if you look, go on Cook, uh, cook optics on YouTube. They always have these interviews with cinematographers and they, you know, they'll always ask what makes a good shot? What makes good cinematography? This and that. Invariably, everybody says you need to add depth into your shot. Well, I just watched, you know, Colors of Pomegranates and the whole shit is flat. There's no depth to that movie, but you watch it and it's beautiful. It's graphically beautiful beyond like the, what the images are communicating and like where he's coming from with um, well, he is coming from an art tradition of like the, the frescoes, the uh, Eastern Orthodox frescoes and paintings. So there's like a cultural moment or a kind of cultural influence over the flatness of it because frescoes were flat in their framing. Um, so beyond all of that, it's still graphically interesting and it's 10 times better than most what any Hollywood person could cinematographer could do. Um, so like I was in because I expanded my kind of knowledge, it was like, oh, all of this is bullshit. You know, so like there's no real, um, there's no good and bad aren't. It, it's not, it's not black and white. Yeah. Right. Unless it's black, it's black and white. And white. <laughs> um, but in undergrad, I, they were shutting down the film production program in undergrad. So I was more focused on film studies and my film studies at, uh, FAU, they taught dialectically. So you would learn like. Boardwell and Thompson, but they would also each chapter or each concept, they would have um, uh, either a direct critique or like a different opinion or something of that of how mainstream film history and criticism and theory and practice was kind of taught. And that was very eye opening to me as well, because the purpose of like the origins of cinematography in chronophotography that's sports and science, right? It's the Moy Bridge uh, experiment with the horse and the racetrack, which is a, it was essentially a gamble because uh, Leland Stanford of Stanford University wanted to know how horses run. And he put a bet that, you know, at least one hoof was on the ground. Turns out it wasn't. But 
you know, so you have zoology in there, right? You have um, kinesiology, which is the study of motion. You have gambling and you have horse racing. Like that's the origins of cinematography. That's the origins of cinema. It's not story. It's not anything like that. Um, And I think it's important to understand that cinematography isn't just telling stories visually because, you know, with Melies, you have magic, right? And there's these kind of like sight gag films, like what it feels like to get run over by a car where the car comes and, you know, runs over the camera or like the big swallow where like, you know, and all of these are kind of fun and kitschy and they're not really quote unquote meaningful or deep, but they're entertaining certainly. And we like watching them. We enjoy watching them and, you know, kind of the modern parallel. And I've always argued, I've always argued that everything that was happening before 1915 birth of a nation are legitimate forms of film languages. Um, and they were just kind of shut down or eaten, as it were, by kind of the prestige cinema that Birth of a Nation represents because that model, they couldn't, the producers and the filmmakers couldn't find a sustainable model for that um, in terms of exhibition, which were these like, I think they're called Nickelodeons where you put- Yeah, the, the Nickelodeon and you, right. you put your- Right. And then you were seeing that, you know, you're seeing it in bar fronts, uh, movies in bar fronts and saloons and things like this. That wasn't sustainable. And then so- they created this kind of notion of prestige cinema where films are based off of books and literature and the Bible. And then now there's theater houses, right? Like movie theaters and things like this, where you can go and buy dinners and eat. And it's a night out on the town based off of like Broadway, but accessible to an area that has a movie theater um, so that they can get more money essentially. And that became a sustainable practice. And so the early kinds of cinema are kind of have died out. You know, like when, when people talk about it historically, they say, oh, all of these were failed experiments to get to this point. I don't see it that way, because when you look outside of the skirts of Hollywood and Hollywood is culturally imperialistic, as we've talked about. So like it demands and it kind of commands the many of how Holly, uh, how film evolves. But if you look at something like TikTok or Vine, that's the big swallow. That's, you know, it's a single viewer experience like a Nickelodeon. Right. And it's a short kind of fun content, you know, kind of, it could be visually, you know, pleasing, like a little Melies cut here and there, you know? Yeah. When you brought the Vine argument up all of four years ago, I really was not ready for that. Um, but uh, you were right, you know? Right. I mean, it's pretty incredible how much how much of a story or how much information you can get across in such a short amount of time. Six seconds. And, and how creative they were. Right. And that's a lot. I mean, they might have had a little bit more time. I think the Lumiere, um, I forget what their little camera was called. It was a camera and a projector. I forget what it was called. But I think it's like a, oh, maybe over a minute is what it could handle. So it had more than six seconds, but it's kind of like the same idea. How much can you shove in a short kind of period? You know, the or, one of the origins of cinema and cinematography is kinesiology. I think that's how you pronounce it, the study of motion. Um, and we were talking about, like, sports and things like that. That's Annie Oakley. There's a video of Annie Oakley uh, shooting bullseyes and, like, really, really quickly, right? Because she's an expert marksman. People love when Keanu Reeves, you know, goes to the shooting range and you get to see his training for John Wick. And there's a whole, you know... Uh, YouTube community over like marksmen's and seeing who can go through the course the fastest and who's who can have the best trick shot or whatever it is you know and there's a there's a specific visual language for how football is filmed how that's different than how swimming is filmed right so I think it's important to mention that even though most people who are probably listening to this are thinking in a narrative context but it's important to understand that cinematography it has different uh, methods and different languages for different for photographing different things. Um, and we were talking about how also science is involved in this, you know, so in the 1920s, you have Jean Penlev who is shooting um, ocean, like oceanography and like marine animals and things like this. And then how with virtual cinematography um, in around 2013, 14, whenever, um, whenever Christopher Nolan came out with Interstellar, like because of virtual cinematography, we're able to now, see what a black hole looks like you know and i think that's something that's very important for me in my practice is when i came across um Werthoff, you know and his 
uh, whole theory about like the camera is a mechanical eye and this mechanical eye sees differently than we see and it can see things that we can't see. And so for me, that's become a very important part of my practice as a filmmaker and my practice as a cinematographer is to show things that people can't see. Like nobody can see the earth, right, from outer space. But with a camera, we can, you know, outside of like the 20 people who've been in space, you know. But in addition, I'm thinking of something like in um, Chunking Express when he's running around the track and it's that step printed thing. You can't see that right when somebody's running you see them running right or like freeze frames or things like this it, it shows you things the camera can show you things that you've seen a million times before in different ways and that's very important to my practice and and i've realized that but something that i guess we can transition into um what i guess the majority of the conversation is is going to take up is the politics of the image and how Howard kind of in, informed our approaches to cinematography in that way. In undergrad and in my independent study, when I was talking about how, you know, everything is kind of culturally um, different and approaches are different. And you were talking about earlier, the budget and the scheduling affects style and things like this. So I was exposed to a lot of ideas, but I really didn't have a way of channeling them into something that was like unique to me. And, and to my perspective. So I was just like, you know, copying other people, which, excuse me, which is important to do as, as a cinematographer, um, as a director anyway, maybe not to put it out in the world, but like everybody copies, you know, a painter copies a Picasso or a Da Vinci or whatever so that they can learn about how they use shadows and lighting and framing and things like this. And musicians copy each other all of the time to learn chord progressions and key changes and stuff like this and, and the structure of, of, of a song. So it's important to do in, in practice, but it, I wasn't really expressing myself in any kind of personal or unique way until Howard University. And I was able to channel like all of this energy into, into that. Right. Um, and the exhibitionism, like for a long time, it was the exhibitionism of it because like early cinema was my, my shit, you know, the Soviets were my shit, you know, anything that I could see that was new and unique as opposed to the kind of like the voyeuristic cinematography of narrative where, you know, invisible editing is a thing. And if, if this, if the camera, if you can sense the cinematography, you know, then it's bad cinematography. For me, I like seeing that because it's a movie. It's, it's visual. You know, you have to see it. And the unique characteristics of this medium are editing and cinematography. I don't feel like you should hide that. You know, it's good to have a story, you know, from episode four in the art of storytelling. We're like, fuck story, this and that. I've kind of loosened up on that. That's an evolution. But I still think that it's important to um, to not just have cinematography that and editing um, that just visually explicates a plot point. That's boring to me. You know, there needs to be something else there that that the cinematography is expressing itself. And it's interesting. This will be the last thing before we transition into Howard is that there's a difference. I've known this. This is something that I, I've known, but I really didn't have an example to kind of articulate it. But when Black is King came out, I was fascinated by the images but the cinematography is some shit, you know? So I think there's a difference between cinematography and images. So, so everything that's in the frame, the costumes, the movement, the colors, the, the location, the production design, how those are kind of collated within the frame are really interesting. And I think she's saying or expressing like these ideas about culture and movement and memory and rememory and you know, um, the, the culture that stayed during the transatlantic slave trade, which is something that AJ points out that Nam June Paik always said, is that the culture that of the future is a culture that you can carry in, in your DNA. And so I think that's, ideas like that are being expressed in Black is King, but the lighting is shit, the framing is shit, like, it looks like a, it looks plastic, it looks like a calendar, it looks like a National Geographic documentary, you know? And it was it was very eye opening to understand the difference between like what a good image is and what good cinematography is. And I feel like there's a it's very tricky. Cinematography is very hard to talk about because it's a technical thing. It's um, it's a managing thing, a managerial job. It's 
an artistic thing and you know you can have good production design and shitty cinematography and people will say oh this is a good cinematography mm-hmm. right because of the the production value and things like that so i think that's an interesting conversation but i feel like the reason why everybody's here is because of the bison way the howard way right which in terms of uh, tracking you know the other two stages of my ideal idea of cinematography so yeah. it was just seven songs from malcolm x which just pointed out that Great. oh you can do something different. AJ shot this short piece and they just had these just studio setups. So it's talking about the legacy of Malcolm X, but it isn't some, it's not a bio. And I, I'm, I don't mean anything against the autobiography, you know, the Spikes movie. It, I love that it movie. is a biography in like a more poetic or meditative way. In the way that Looking for Langston is a biography of Langston Hughes, but it's also a meditation on the Harlem Renaissance. And it's not, it's not like he was born and then. And then right, and then, yeah. right. So, I mean, that in itself, the presentation of it was astounding to me. Mm-hmm. And also because I'm like, at that point I was like 23 and it's like, how have I not heard of any of these people? Um, which, you know, then led to Brad and to understanding that, you know, the initial, the first, you know, five years of uh, Spike's, you know, major career is heavily influenced mm-hmm. on the photography of Ernest Dickerson, you know, and Mother of George is the, that's like the, the foundational stone of moving forward mm-hmm. into the present and the future for me of, oh, how do you even get to this point where you develop these gorgeous images, uh, you know, this this composition and rhythm of mm-hmm. images to still tell a story that is so idiosyncratic, but also at, at least in my eyes and my, you know, my aesthetic, you know, things that please me, how it resonated so like so much, you mm-hmm. know, where every time I look back on it, I find something new and wanting to, un- and wanting to discover, you know, what is the dynamic and relationship between this director and this cinematographer, which led to, you know, uh, a, a few very meaningful conversations and, um, you know, uh, discussions that Brad had that I was able to witness and, that rearranged everything before getting on set and mm-hmm. turning on the camera and pressing record. So I think the emphasis now in terms of what is good cinematography, it's like, to me, part of the answer is where are you pulling from and why? You mm-hmm. know, if everything is reference-based, you know, because you can make whatever story you want, you know, you know, a genre piece, an experimental thing, and just put the camera up and say, oh, I did it because I wanted to. But if right. you're pulling from different sources that are not only just meaningful to you or are exciting to you and you're marrying that with either the director's vision or the rest of the crew's vision and pushing yourself further to to create something that is impactful for you and the practitioners around you right. you know which which to me and it might be cheating but like right now the the most present thing on my mind about cinematography is what you know i've heard brad talk about over and over again like you know he is very interested in building a community around the work that he's doing Mm -hmm. you know why spend a year or two working on a project with people that you wouldn't want to sit down and have a meal with that you can't build with that by the end of it you might call some of them your family and to me i think that was something that was missing for me in the practice of filmmaking in undergrad and i only started to uncover what I wanted and how it was possible at the institution. And, you know, obviously you and Ladon are the biggest reasons for that awakening and, oh, and, a, and ability to even, you know, to, to even move forward with that with any sort of confidence. So even though the work in that, in that time frame has been all over the place, it was the safest place to experiment and to push myself further mm-hmm. in different directions. So, mm-hmm. Um, that's more or less like in total where it's taking me and, you know, soon, very soon I have an opportunity to try it again in a different way. And it's 45 minutes. It's, it's not even a, yeah, today, but it's, (laughs) it's, it's the fact that one, I'm nervous, but also very excited for the prep and not prep I've done. Mm -hmm. And for the idea that is 
still mysterious to me about what I'm what I'm about to do. Right. But going back in the what you said about what AJ said about um, you know your your future culture is found in your DNA. Mm-hmm. Right? Name Jim Payne, the father of video art, said that. But AJ quotes it all the time. Right. So in high school, when I didn't know shit, but I thought I knew everything, the idea was take my neighbor's HVX and shoot for a whole 60 minutes and put the whole, the, put the whole tape on a, on a computer and just make something happen. And I'm about to do a more modified version of that. (laughs) You know, I have a lot of ideas with different, you know, camera formats and technical stuff that I want to try. And I'm excited to do that, but I have somebody who's just as excited to go on the journey part and to take the onus and to put it, and to put myself in position to just trust that, you know, I've done this before, so there's no reason to think any action is going to cause some right. catastrophic mistake. So it it's not the most sophisticated, you know, reading or idea of what the future and cinema is, but it's like I'm literally just trying to get back on the horse where I can trust myself not only to do something, but beyond that, I can then trust myself to translate that to, you know, yeah. future teams. Yeah. Um, so like on the first day of, of Howard University, MFA film school, and I'm kind of collapsing time here, just, you know, it's nice to exaggerate a little bit and like a movie. Yeah. And storytelling. Look at that. Mm. Um, they tell you about how integral white supremacy is to film. And when most people talk about racism, in film, they always mention Birth of a Nation. And the way in which they mention Birth of a Nation is that it had these racist stereotypes and that the KKK were the heroes of the film. What Howard teaches you is that that is very true and that's very important to talk about. But on a more molecular level, the cinematography, which is, I mean, Birth of a Nation is... It's, it has a place in film history that is both... Hyper-racist? No, 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 no. It's over-inflated, but it's also under-inflated. Like everything that happens in Birth of a Nation that you were talking about in terms of 180-degree rule and long-form storytelling and all of, the, all of the technical shit, like the first close-ups and all of this that it gets credit for, happened before. Like it, it's, it's, it's good as a teaching tool to, to kind of say that birth of a nation did this is because it's doing it well for the first time, all of these different kind of things that people had been doing since in many cases, since before the turn of the century, right. Um, or at the turn of the century, like cross cutting that happened in 1902. So everything that it gets credit. So in that sense, it's not as historically important as we think it is, but because it has been kind of misconstrued as being this historically important, everybody traces the lineage of modern American and Hollywood specifically film to that, that we have to like kind of look at it and investigate it. And something that nobody really talks about is the basis of cinematography in birth of a nation and how it's white supremacist. It's not white supremacist because it has, you know, people in blackface or, you know, these, you know, because this again goes the difference between cinematography and images that we were talking about earlier. Those are racist images. Yes. But the cinematography isn't racist because it's shooting, uh, you know, blackface, blackface or whatever. The reason why it's white supremacist is because the heart of white supremacy is the deification and the infantilization of white women, which necessitates their protection because, you know, white women bear children and that's the future of the race and yada, yada, yada. And so what cinematography does is it makes, it deifies the white women, right? So you have, I don't know who plays, I know Lillian Gish is in the movie. I don't think she plays little sister, but little sister, that's the infantilization coming along. But if you want to take Griffith as the first person to do close-ups of, of, of faces and, and this, the structure of the close-ups is to deify white women. And if you look at any cinematography uh, tutorial on YouTube, right, except for maybe Aperture. And Shout on, out to Ted. 
And unless it's like specifically how to light black skin or how to light, you know, non-white people, invariably the model is always a white woman. And so it's this emphasis on white women. And so that's how you get your kind of lighting structures and your framing techniques is based in white supremacy of deifying white women. And narratively, this, you know, happens as well in Birth of a Nation where Gus, the white man in blackface playing a black rapist who wants to rape little sister, right? She can't, right? The, we're talking about the protection and things like this. She goes outside, right? Your men can't protect you outside. So now she's vulnerable and Gus chases her around. And what does she do? As opposed to getting raped, which mixes the blood, which is the death knell of the, that's white genocide and all of these concepts. She jumps off the cliff and kills herself because it's better to die as a white woman than be raped or have sex with a black man, right? And it ends on a close-up, right, of her face. The beautiful lighting, you know, all of this. And so therefore, again, the deification of white women is at the heart of cinematography. And this goes into framing and this goes into um, the lighting uh, schemes and all of this. But in addition to that, before Birth of a Nation, we still have methodologies uh, and logics of white supremacy embedded into cinematography. One of the earliest and most popular forms of cinema before Birth of a Nation were the travelogue films. And the travelogue films are whatever colonial power country going to whatever country that they're colonizing and showing the exotic, you know, um, landscapes and the the weird orientalist views of the people and like mm -hmm. this and that and this is the establishing shots these are the interstitial shots that mm -hmm. eventually become a part of narrative cinema so we have white supremacy with birth of a nation we have colonialism with these travelogue films and in the opposite of the travelogue films the city uh, symphonies as they were called those are showing you the exploits of the colonialism so look at these big buildings look at our museums look at what we're able to build off of this colonial wealth but even before that with chronophotography going back to Moybridge um, there was a um, Italian uh, anthropologist named Paolo Mantegazza who would go to North Africa and to the Middle East and things like that. And he would study the way in which uh, Africans or Middle Easterns or Asians moved in this kind of phrenology kind of, you know, the races are different, race science type of thing. So all of this is embedded into cinematography and all of this is embedded in the language of cinema. So Garima comes up and he's like, all of this, here's the history of this, the camera, is built to produce a white supremacist image. You have your little script and you're just going to shoot your movie. So you've just made a white supremacist movie because you don't know none of this, but it's nice that, you know, representation matters and all of this, you little turkey. Mm -hmm. So like, how do you, how do you square that circle? And that's the, that's the challenge in order to, theoretically, that's a challenge in order to graduate Howard, is that you've been able to square that circle. How do you take something that is meant to produce white supremacist images, images that are antagonistic towards you, you and your community and your people, and not do that, mm -hmm. right? And the second day, they put Elder Grace by Chester Higgins in front of you. And this is beautiful uh, portrait photography of black elders by famed... Uh, photographer Chester Higgins and our cinematography professor was like you need to create images that are like this because you can you, it's palpable Chester's love of black people right you feel it it, 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 it punches you in the face right it, it smell you can smell it, 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 it it's bleeding off of the page that's what you need to do how do you do that when the camera's default is to produce a white supremacist image, right? Even digital cameras, like uh, what Brad was talking about with the early Ari cameras, is that on the waveform monitor, no, on, on the false color monitor, it said calibrated for fair skin, fair meaning white. So it's, it's even embedded into the logic of the algorithms of digital cameras, right? So Which is translated over from the from film stocks. Cellular, right, because the lighting schemes, again... 
for close-ups and, and beautiful images and things like this come from white supremacy. I mean, one of my favorite cinematographers, Jack Cardiff, the Technicolor master, wrote a book called Magic Hour. And it's nothing but white supremacist propaganda. I'm, like, it's, oh, this is what I did to photograph Marilyn Monroe or this starlet or that starlet. And it's like the excitement that he gets from photographing, because he was a photographer too. He was like a celebrity photographer and a cinematographer. And he, it, it's just like, like it's the language that he's using. Like he's talking to them as if they're gods. And, um, you know, you read about some of these behind the scenes of some of these old classic Hollywood films. There was one film, I forget what it was called, but like whoever it is, Catherine Hepburn or somebody walks from the stairs onto this chaise and lounge. they spent a week and a half lighting that scene just so she would be beautiful. And every step of the, when, when, they, when they cut with the camera, a, light, a, a week and a half to photograph her just walking across the screen. You know, like that's, that's how ingrained this is. Um, and even if you watch like a film noir, they'll be under like some, you know, street light. And the woman is, you know, they have all the filter soft, on yeah. and they have, all the lighting is soft. And the man just who's one sitting. Just fucking hard light. It's a hard light, that ugly like, shadow. Uh, nigga, you baking they're standing in under the same. They're standing under the same light. So they would be lit the same, more or less, you know. Um, so much for realism in film, I guess. Right. But the metaphor that keeps coming up at Howard University, which was developed in the LA Rebellion, which obviously is kind of like the predecessor program of the Howard MFA program, is cinematic jazz. And I think we talked about this in the Brad episode, but what that really is, is looking to musicians, jazz musicians specifically, not to structure films off of jazz, but to have the attitude of jazz musicians, of taking this European instrument, like the piano is a classic example, wrenching it from its, you know, European colonial context and using it to your own purpose, right? Mm. And so that means creating new musical structures, creating new rhythms, moving, I don't know if you can move outside the diatonic scale, but like the, the devil's note, you know, in like the 17th century, whenever, you know, that would get you killed if you played like certain notes because they're like dark and, and mysterious and all of that. The it's, good ones. The, right, the blues notes. Right. They were the called the devil's ones. notes. Right, right. Exactly. So like now you're using these things that have these notes that were and these chord progressions that were never used before because it's taboo and it's against God and it's not white and it's all of this and things like that. And so how does that happen in cinematography? How does that happen in your editing? How does that happen in your storytelling? And that's one of the clues that they give you to kind of square that circle is to misappropriate the camera because the camera hates you. Mm. So fuck the camera. And do whatever you want to do. And so that, all of those ideas that I was having before about, oh, all of this is bullshit anyway, I can do whatever I want, you know, I now have something to channel that through. And one of the things that AJ, there was a black popular culture um, forum in the 90s. It's published in a book, um, but AJ presented there and he was talking about space. And he was like, I was watching these Ozu films and I remember from at Howard, we watched the Oscar Micheaux films and I remembered everybody was saying that Oscar Micheaux is, you know, pioneer of black filmmaking, grandfather of black film, but he's very primitive, but everybody's praising Ozu. Ozu has the same spatial layout as um, Oscar Micheaux. Hmm. So why is he praised for, breaking the 180 degree rule not even not even breaking it not even concerned with the 180 degree why is ozu praised but we think of oscar michaud as primitive and that got him thinking about other things about movement and how again with jazz you know how billy holiday intones um a song or, or intones her voice or, or uh nina simone or whoever and he come to the conclusion that it's frame rate right so variable frame rate 13 frames a second 109 frames like that's how he thinks, like the old hand crank films, yeah. like he was thinking along those lines. But for me, space is really important to think about because I always hated the 180 degree rule. I don't care about continuity. There are other forms of continuity. There's continuity of motion, which you see in like the Satoshi Kon films where it's a graphic match on action. There's a continuity of the frame where you see in the Meliez films where it's like somebody's there and then cut their poof, it's a smoke, you know? Right. Um, so there are other forms of continuity, you know, but when 
it it's so jarring to us especially people who have been inculcated with hollywood film that 180 degree rule whether you know what that is or not if you see like a jump in the line it's oh my god this is poor filmmaking it isn't necessarily that like there's an intentionality behind it but you're told not to do that and again i think that as black people particularly black americans who were taken from a particular context and on the continent brought over here right and then freed quote unquote and with the great migration and then with gentrification like there's no stable sense of space and time right you we can't track our family histories back past the auction block right we've been in harlem for you know 100 plus over 100 you know years and in a matter of three years four years whatever all of that culture all of those people are gone are displaced there's no stable sense of, of space and time. You walk down the street at 9 p.m., everybody moves to the other side of the street. Like you, 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 repel, like you have such control over space that you repel people. Hmm. But as soon as you walk into the bodega, not only is the bodega cat following you, the guy behind the counter is following you, hmm. and the little white lady who's shopping for flour or whatever is following you. Hmm. Now you're attracting people. Now you're like this gravity well of space. So like... Your your sense of uh, the sense of space is completely not stable, and so why should the presentation of space in black film be, be right. stable, or at least dictated by dictated and by 180 degrees? As a black person, if you could only see 180 degrees, you'd be dead. You have to know what's going on behind you. Hmm. You know, you have to know what's going on above you, around you, at all times. You have to have a composite view in order to survive. Because who knows who's going to fucking run up? You know, the police. You have to know where the police are. Mm-hmm. Police could be over there. They could be over there. So, to me, the the kind of thinking of space is is really important. And cinematography is obviously very much a part of that. Mm. Um, yeah, no, that's um, that's uh, wild because you or we end up living in that way. And at some point, it's so ingrained that you don't think about it. But when you right. actually map it out. That does right. affect not only how you interpret the world, but how you would express it in any art form, specifically right. in something that is so you know visual uh, and linked with movement right. and time and, and space. And that's kind of what I'm talking about: is that like even if an audience doesn't necessarily understand that intellectually, they might be able to feel that vibration. Yeah, you know what I mean. And um, that I think is what I'm talking about, about like centering your practice in things that aren't just narrative, but are like cultural and historical and things like this. And that can express, you know, other ideas beyond just plot points and character details, you know? Mm-hmm. So I think that's it for me. So yeah, exploring uh, beyond the obvious narrative world. Uh, experimenting yeah. like crazy because oh, yeah. nobody cares otherwise. Right. I mean, like you, I mean, I'm in product photography. That's, that's kind of like my, my bread and butter. And, you know, everything is very mathematical. The lens has to be this far away from the object for these objects, but for those objects, it has to be this far away. It has to be shot on this kind of focal length. The lighting needs to come from the left for these objects, but it needs to be top lit for these objects. Nobody knows what the fuck they're, they're still, you know, they're still, <laughs> Okay, well, let's just let's do this and, you know, we'll make a book light for this or like this will just be harsh light and, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody's kind of like still, you know, experimenting. There's like, even with such in a rigid structure as product photography, there's still room for doing unique things. Because mm. sometimes you're photographing something and it's like it, those, those st- structures don't allow for it to be photographed. Like you, you do the things by the book and it looks like shit. So now what do you do? Mm. You have to break the rules. So I guess uh, we're saying uh, break the rules. Um, well, there are no rules. There are guidelines. And those guidelines are, you know, colonially, colonially informed and, you know, capitalistically informed and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, uh, also lighting. Cinematography is all about lighting. I think, like, uh, in terms of a lesson... Use lights. Use you, light. I'm telling you, you, like can. as soon you could have the worst fucking camera in the world. You mm-hmm. can have old scratched up celluloid, but if your lighting is good, mm. 
your image is like that's like 70% of it. And it's cool. That's 80% of it. And it's cool if you don't have the, you know, Ari Sky panels. Honestly, you can still get the regular ass joints from the hardware store or if you don't even have money for the hardware store stuff, you know, natural sunlight. Yeah, and can like AJ shot Daughters of the Dust all natural sunlight. Crazy. Yeah. Um and Orchid Boys, everybody talks about in the beginning. <laughs> Yo, you know I'm going to have to talk about Orchid Boys. You know. You know, Timmy. You know. All right, that's it. But go ahead. Um, when Stu is on the phone at the beginning on his bed and the orange light, mm-hmm. everybody's like, wow, that's lit so beautifully. How did you do that? That's your floor light. That is your floor lamp light. And I, the white balance was incorrect in the camera. So it turned out to be super orange. And I just bumped it a little bit in post. Look at that. And everybody's like, this is the most amazing. It's a mistake that I made. And you're like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this was such a good coordinated planned idea that I executed. Right. So it's like, what the fuck rules are there? Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Uh, well, all right. Uh, that's it. Uh, let us know about your cinematography practices, whether you, uh, are following all the rules, never knew any rules, want tips and ideas and stuff that you can get from YouTube Riot film school, rocket jump. Film hey, school. we all, we all, we've all been there, you know, Matt Workman, you know, but, yeah. um, yeah, you know, let us know. Let's talk about the cinematography shit. Uh, you know, I'm always about cinematography and fuck white cinematographer shooting black film, fuck black directors, hiring white cinematographers. We didn't get to talk about that, but the blueprint, the pink print, Black print is and will always be Roderick Young, Charles Burnett, James Hinton, AJ, Ernest, Malik, Christian, Brad, LaDon is about to pop off, Rachel Jones is about to pop off, Brandy Bruce is about to pop off, Howard, and the legacy of Howard University with the LA Rebellion. Fuck out of here. Preach, brother. Well, that's it for this uh, round. You can uh, catch us on the socials. (laughs) I'm at it's zebra 11 on Instagram and it's zebra on Twitter. Rory, where you at? I'm at Rim Blues and Rim underscore Blues. I forget because you know who cares. Uh huh. Instagram and Twitter. And it's niggas underscore Eaton and Eaton niggas on Twitter or Instagram. I'm not sure which one. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Peace out. Yep. Eight times done.